Well, last week we began a series, a two-part series called Vanity and Glory. And we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, where Solomon tells us about his search for meaning and purpose, for joy or for satisfaction under heaven. Solomon tried to live to satisfy his own desires without acknowledging God. And he plunged himself then into the idols of the world, not the, not the wood and gold little false gods of the pagan world. He knew that, that those weren't gods. Instead, he pursued the things that those false gods promised. He tried living for any number of things that seemed to offer meaning or fulfillment or purpose or joy or satisfaction in the world. He had everything that the world could offer. We could frame it like this. He, he tried everything the world and the devil could offer and everything that the flesh could want. He tried pleasure, laughter, um, what we might call fun and entertainment. He added some wine to, quote, cheer his body. He tried projects. He built great houses for himself, orchards and vineyards and decorative gardens. He built the greatest wonders of the ancient world at, his ta- at the time, including the temple of Yahweh. Third, he acquired possessions. He had slaves. He owned people, people to do whatever he wanted them to do. And he gathered a vast amount of wealth. Remember, we calculated it last week as um, 890 million U.S. per year of just gold came into his kingdom. I recalculated it this week according to today's value, and that'd be $1.6 billion U.S. per per year. Solomon had many wives, many concubines, the text says. He was also famous. He says, I became great and surpassed all who went before me in Jerusalem. He had whatever he wanted, and, and whatever he wanted, he got, and he tried it, and he examined it all, and he declared it was all vanity. Ecclesiastes 2.11 says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes began with that declaration in verse 2 of the book, chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And Ecclesiastes ends with that declaration. Ecclesiastes 12.8 is the last verse before the epilogue, and it says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And you'll remember if you were with us last time that vanity means empty, transient, temporary, fleeting. It's like, it's like smoke that you, you can't grasp hold of. There's, there's nothing solid to it. And so Solomon argues in Ecclesiastes that everything under the sun is empty. Everything under the sun can't ultimately satisfy. And he argues this, again, from an earthly perspective. He, he means that without God, life, even the so-called good life, without God, life is empty. In fact, Solomon argues this from his own life experience in chapters 1 and 2. He had everything and he tried everything and he says it was vain. He realized that he would die and then everything he did would amount to nothing, that he would be forgotten in the next generations and it was all vain, it was empty, it was fleeting. And then in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of the book, Solomon argues the same point, this time from his observation. He uses his wisdom to look out on the world, and he saw the world, he studied it, and again, he concludes, it's all vanity. And so last week in our, in our sermon series, in, in part one, I, I tried to warn us of living for vanity, that we should not be like Solomon was. We should not strive after wind, as he puts it. We shouldn't live for this world. We shouldn't live for the merely temporal. We should not worship idols. And again, not gold and statue and wood things, but I'm, I'm talking about idols, other things besides God. Instead, we need to keep eternity in mind. We need to live for and worship 
our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week I began by asking something along these lines. Do you know how to rejoice in the Lord? Do you know how to rejoice in the Lord? We, we know that we should find joy in the Lord, don't we? We, we know that, that that's, that's where our joy is to be. We know that we should live for Him. We know that we should worship, and, and not just on Sunday, but we, I think we know that our lives should be an act of worship to Jesus Christ. But when we really think about it, do we know how? Do we understand what it means to rejoice in the Lord and how to go about it? If we don't really know, then what we're left with is quite useless. How can we put off living for the world if we have no idea how to put on living for God? And I think often that's, that's actually our real problem. We, we, know, we know perfectly well what not to do, right? We know what we shouldn't do, but sometimes we don't know what we should do. We don't know how to do the opposite good thing. We know we shouldn't live for fun or possessions. We shouldn't live for projects or pleasures or houses or acreages or people or fame or any other number of things. I think we know that. But the question then comes again, what do we do? What should replace those things? Something has to take their place. We can't just say, you know, I'm no longer going to look to those things. I'm going to give up the world. Something has to fill that void. There, there, we can't just kind of be neutral and, and empty that way. We just sang, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. But to actually believe that and to live that out daily means that we need something. We need to see something in Jesus far surpassing whatever we see in the riches of the world. And that's something that we see it has to be with us. It has to continue with us day by day, every day. Otherwise, we're going to be tempted to turn back to those other things. And so we need to learn to rejoice in the Lord and not in the world. We need to learn it so well that we can delight in the Lord even when we are facing difficulty, even when we're facing trials, even when we're facing persecution. And that's why I started this series is so that we could learn this so that whatever happens in this next year, we would be ready to serve the Lord no matter how difficult life gets. Now the the difficulty here, at least for, for me, is that it's, it's actually hard to find anything on this. Scripture gives us what we need, but it's not laid out as a manual. It's not a, it's not a how-to book on how to find joy in the Lord. And, and I don't know of a, a resource that, that brings it all together neatly for us. Uh, one of my favorite books on, on spiritual growth, and, and I would include learning to rejoice in the Lord as, as part of our spiritual growth. One of my favorite books, it's called Gospel Treason, and, and the subtitle is Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. And the book does a great job of explaining idolatry and helping us to discover the hidden idols of our hearts, the things other than God that we trust in or rely on. The book defines an idol like this. An idol is anything other than God that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. Let me say that again. An idol is anything other than God that captures our hearts, minds, and affections, our, our loves more than God. But in that really good book, that one of my favorite books, there's only a few pages at the end of the book to suggest how God should capture our hearts, minds, and affections. There's lots on how to discover and put off idols, but there's very little on how to live an idol-free life, how to put that on. And it's not necessarily a critique of the book. I'm just saying I don't know of a resource. I have uh, another book in my office called Delighting in the Trinity and a book called Enjoying God by the same author. And I reviewed that book this week. And uh, I remember, though, when I read it that I was, I was quite disappointed that it, it just didn't really get to what I was hoping it would get to. 
And so the best thing that I have, and I'm talking about books and resources that, that teach Scripture, that not, not just books in general, but books that explain and teach Scripture, the best thing that I have on this is, is John Piper's book called Desiring God. I asked another pastor friend this week, I said, you know, I, I want to teach, uh, and this is my friend Jason, I said, Jason, I want to teach this week on, on rejoicing in the Lord, and I told him that sometimes we, we use those words, but we don't really understand what it means or how to do it. And he just confessed to me, he says, well, he didn't say good luck with that, but he kind of gave me that kind of an impression, good luck with that, Mike, because uh, I actually don't really know myself what I would say about that. I don't know how I would teach that, or I don't know of any resources that would be helpful in that study. All that to say is just that we're, we're getting into some deeper waters here. And, and even last week, as I told you what I was going to try to do this week, I might have promised more than I can deliver on this. But still, I'm convinced that this is what we need to prepare us to serve the Lord this year and in, and in this increasingly hostile world. The 18th century uh, Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers has a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can tell from the title that he's from the 17th, 18th century. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in the book, he argues that the only way to expulse an affection, or to maybe put it in our more contemporary language, the only way to remove a love say the love of the world, is by replacing that love with a higher and a greater love for something else. And of course, that something else is God himself. And his famous sermon begins with John, 1 John 2.15, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then Chalmers says, and I, I kind of, I tried to modernize and shorten the language a little bit for you. He says this, quote, there are, there are two ways to attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be persuaded simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its love, so that the heart shall be persuaded not to resign an old affection with nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. End quote. And so that's what he's trying to tell us. He's trying to, he's saying we need to exchange the love of the world for a love of a greater object, that is the love of God, and then by that love of God, this old love, this old affection will be removed from us. And he goes on to argue in the, in the sermon that the only way, the only true way to turn somebody from a love of the world is by setting up in the person's heart a new love for God. Well, let's, let's try to get into this then today. And, and this is going to be different. It's probably already been a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally, if you're, and if you're visiting with us, I would just encourage you to come back on a normal Sunday when we open up a, a text of scripture and, and just look at that text and teach through the text. And normally on a Sunday when you have an outline there that you got as you come in, there's a, there's actually an outline on that and not just a blank piece of paper for you to take notes on. So we're just kind of, I'm just, I'm just really, what I'm doing today is just sharing what's been most helpful for me in regard to these things and, and, and trying to present it in as, as logical a way that I could. But again, I don't, I couldn't even come up with an outline for you. So we're going to look at a number of passages today and we're going to kind of go here and there, but I, I want to start off with, by, by kind of finishing off and, and clarifying where we left off in Ecclesiastes last week. Ecclesiastes has its own answer to um, the vanity of the world. And so here's how I would summarize the teaching of Ecclesiastes on vanity. And, and I'm, I'm leaving out how the author applies this in chapter 6 to 8. But, but here it is, Ecclesiastes, everything under the sun is vanity in and of itself. 
Nothing can provide meaning or fulfillment or joy. Everything will be left behind when we die. We're going to die and leave everything behind. Solomon argues there that, that we were created for eternity, but we live in time and our pursuits in time are vain in and of themselves. And one just quick example, if you weren't here with us last week, I've been kind of thinking, how could I illustrate this? You know, I, and, and for whatever reason, as I was writing, I thought of a delicious steak, a really delicious barbecue steak, which you can't do right now because it's so cold outside, you can't barbecue a steak. But when summer comes back, we're going to barbecue a delicious steak. And even if I could grill the perfect steak with the best seasonings and I cooked it just right and I got the, the fat crispy the way that I really like it, I don't know how you like it, but you imagine your favorite food. And now you, you eat that delicious food and it'll give you nutrients and it'll, it'll give you energy for the day. But guess what? You're going to be hungry again. That is vanity. You're going to be hungry again. And, and if you think about it, it has no eternal value. And it doesn't fulfill your soul. It doesn't give your life ultimate meaning. It's, it's enjoyable in the moment. But then what's the point of that? That's vanity that Solomon is wrestling with in the book. And Solomon's answer to this situation is, is a twofold answer. He says first, and, and really I, even before that, he, he wants us to recognize that everything is vain and empty in and of itself. That without God, it's just, it's just useless and then you're going to die and be judged. But first he says then, Regardless of that, he wants us to enjoy those vain things, but, but not for their own sake. He wants us to enjoy them as a gift from God. Solomon says we should recognize God as the gracious giver of enjoyment in life. And each of the four sections of the book end with a similar refrain. And I, I want to take you through these refrains. And so if you're not there, we should, we should try to find the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, it goes... Uh, in your English Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. This is the end of the first section. And Solomon says there, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, verse 24 could be translated like this, and I think it is best translated and interpreted in this way, there is no good in man by which he should eat and drink and cause his soul to see good in all his labor. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And the idea here then is that man is powerless to make himself see good or to make himself find enjoyment. Enjoyment according to Solomon, must come from God. God must give it as a gift. And then verse 25 confirms this translation interpretation. For apart from him, without God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Verse 26 tells us that God gives joy and knowledge and wisdom to those who please him in spite of the vanity of eating and drinking of itself. But to the sinner, those same mundane things are almost a form of judgment Look again at verse 26, for to the one who pleases God, uh, for the one, to, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after wind. Now, before we go to the next refrain, uh, um, I want to show you kind of the opposite of what we see here in chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes. So go, go ahead and turn with me to chapter 6. And I, I just say, just, just kind of grab what you can as we go, and, and hopefully all of this starts to come together at the end here. But look, look at chapter 6, 
starting in verse 1. He says, There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, or it's kind of prevalent among mankind. It's kind of everywhere. There's much of it. He says, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. So this hypothetical guy here, he has everything that he wants, but God has withheld from him the power to enjoy it. And God has withheld it most likely because the man is not acknowledging God, who alone has the ability to grant us the ability to enjoy life. And so he's the guy who gathers goods only to give it to the one who pleases God. He gathers goods and he's going to die and he's just going to leave it, in this case he says, to strangers. Well, Solomon continues, he says, that's that's vanity and a, a grievous evil. And he continues then, he says, okay, well, let's say instead of strangers, let's say he gathers goods for his children. Well, does that make it any better? Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now, why this guy has no burial with his hundred children, that's, that's a bit of an interpretive issue that I don't want to get into, but the point is that, that even children won't take the vanity away if your soul isn't satisfied with good things. Skip down to verse 6. It says, Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. And the, the one place that all go is death. And so what good is a long life with no enjoyment if, if that long life is going to end in death? Now, I'm, I'm summarizing here Ecclesiastes, and again, everything is vanity, everything is temporal, but, but God gives us the ability to enjoy life, and we should receive that enjoyment as a gift from Him. Now, now look just up at the, the next refrain. So we looked at chapter 224. The next section goes from chapter 3 to the end of chapter 5. And there's a refrain again at the end at 518. One of these eat, drink, and rejoice refrains. So look at 518. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with, with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift or the gift of God. And so again, enjoyment of life is a gift from God. In other words, we are dependent on God to find enjoyment in this life. Let's go to the next one, Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 15 the end of the next section here, he says, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now there's other um, similar expressions throughout the book, but these are the, the ones that come at the end of the major divisions. These three sections divide the book into four parts. And so the, the first answer to vanity that Solomon gives is that, yes, everything is vanity, but you should enjoy it always as a gift from God. So everything is vanity, but, but enjoy it as a gift from God. And then number two, everything is vanity, but God is going to judge everything. Therefore, everything ends up having eternal meaning and everything should be done in the fear of the Lord. That's Solomon's kind of second answer to the vanity of the world. Everything is vanity, but God is going to judge everything you do. Therefore, everything ends up having eternal meaning, and everything should be done in the fear of the Lord. 
Now, the fear of God is, is mentioned five times in Ecclesiastes in key sections. In chapter 3, and you could kind of turn to these if you wanted to, in chapter 3, it's mentioned in the context of God's sovereignty. God is in control, Solomon teaches, of all the events of time. And then look at chapter 3 and verse 11. He says, He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. God has in control of what's happening in time, and he has a plan, and he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. And so God is working a beautiful plan through the vain events of life, through the vain events of the the happenings under the sun, God has made us for eternity. We know somehow, we know instinctively, we know that there's more to life here and now. We, we know that there's, there's got to be something else. We were made for more than this. We have a desire built in to have a meaningful, eternally significant life. And so how can we get involved in eternity if eternity is in our hearts? Well, look at verse 12, the next verse. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. We've seen this before, right? Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing, or nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So what's the answer then? How should we impact eternity? Well, again, first of all, enjoy life as a gift from God, but also get involved in what God is doing. That is eternal. That's how we can have an eternal significance. Whatever God does endures forever. We were made for eternity. So get involved in what God's doing. But notice what God is doing. He's working in time, Solomon tells us, so that people fear before him. Now this is important. God's work in the world through all of the events of time is so that, it, that, that he might bring people to fear him. Now in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, look at that. There's a little section there at the beginning on worship. And it's a warning to beware of what you say in God's presence. Solomon says, don't be rash, don't be hasty, don't be a fool. And it ends with these words in verse 7. But God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. The, the, the fear of God comes again in chapter 7 and verse 18, where the idea is that the one who fears God will strike the right balance in responding to adversity. And then turn to... Uh, chapter 8 and verse 12. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.12. It says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. You know, when you look out at the world and you, you, you understand what's going on in the world, it, it seems sometimes that sinners do well in this world. It looks like they have lots of great and enjoyable things and they even sometimes look like they're prolonging their life and having a great time. And Solomon's telling us, don't be deceived by that. It will be well for the one who fears God. He knows in the end that, it, that it's all vanity, all their enjoyment and, and the, the fun things that it looks like they're doing, it's just vanity and ultimately they're going to die. It won't go well with the wicked, but it will go well, Solomon says, with the one who fears God. Now, just continue to bear with me. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and look at verse 13. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. 
And this is Solomon's conclusion on everything that went before in the book. He says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the conclusion to the reality of vanity then uh, is to fear God. Now, why should we fear God? Well, it's our duty, Solomon says. It's our duty, and God is going to judge every deed, even every secret deed. And that makes everything significant. That makes everything, even if it's vain in and of itself, it's now important because God, who is eternal, is going to judge it. And that means everything that we do in the fear of God and every act of obedience to His commandments is actually eternally significant. Can you see that? Now, if you've been able to, to kind of stick with me here so far, that's great. Everything is vanity, but we were made for eternity. But if we fear God and keep His commandments, we can overcome the vanity, and God can enable us to find joy in the good that He gives. The temporal then becomes eternal. Now, here's where, at least, at least for me and my heart and my life, it gets really good. And this is where we kind of start to get back to this idea of how do we rejoice in the Lord? So let's ask this question. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Or, or what does it mean to fear God? Now, in Scripture, fearing God is tied almost always with keeping His commandments. And we see that already in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Fear God and keep His commandments. In Deuteronomy 5.29, the Lord cries out, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear Me and to keep My commandments that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. And so God is, is almost longing for uh, the, the regenerated heart, the new heart, so that people would fear him and keep his commandments, that they, that they might go well with them, that they might be blessed in this world. In Deuteronomy 6.1, Moses uh, talks about the commandments that the Lord had commanded him to teach Israel. In other words, he's talking about the word of the Lord and, and that he is to teach this word. And then verse 2 says, Deuteronomy 6.2 that you may fear the Lord your God. And so Moses is going to teach the word of God that the, the Israelites may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Now there's two things to get here. First, again, fearing the Lord results in obedience. It results in the keeping of his statutes and his commandments. But second, the fear of the Lord is something that must be taught through the word of the Lord. And so we learn the fear of God. Now uh, to see this, I, I want you to actually go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. So let's look at Deuteronomy 17, 19. Now, in this section, starting in verse 18, the king, the king of Israel, was to make his own copy of the law. And that copy of the law was to be approved by the priests. And then verse 19 says, and it shall be well with him, sorry, uh, Deuteronomy seventeen nineteen, and it shall be with him, this copy of the law that he made, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And so the king was to daily study God's word that he might learn to fear the Lord. Now before we talk about what one might learn to learn how to fear Yahweh, let's, let's see the results of such knowledge. We saw, first of all, when, when somebody fears the Lord, it's going to result in obedience. Well, what else happens when we fear the Lord? Job 28.28 says, God said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And in that passage, 
wisdom and understanding go together. They're, they're synonymous parallels there. And so does the fear of the Lord and to turn away from evil. When we fear God rightly, we simultaneously turn from evil. To fear God is to turn from evil. Proverbs 16, 6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Psalm 128, verse 1 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Those who fear the Lord also walk in his ways, which is the way of blessing. Proverbs 8 and verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And so it goes even further there. To fear the Lord is to not only turn from evil, but to hate evil, to despise evil, the opposite of loving evil. Now, why does the one who fears the Lord hate evil? Because it's the opposite of this God who he has come to fear. Now, t- turn with me to, then to Psalm 25 as we just think about what is this fear of the Lord. Psalm 25. I want to look at verse 12 to 14. Psalm 25, 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. So the fear of the Lord does involve fear, but it's not merely the dread of the Lord in that kind of a, a way. There's, there's also tied with it, there's, there's friendship with the Lord. There's, there's learning from him. God reveals himself to those who fear him and he reveals his covenant. That is, he reveals his salvation to them as well. And that's why this fear is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge because when we come to fear God, God is now gonna reveal himself to us so that we can know him in greater ways. There's a relationship, a friendship between those who fear God and God himself. And that's why just earlier in this psalm, it already talks about your forgiveness. Verse 11, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. The fearing of the Lord begins, I think, I think we could say, with the forgiveness of God that reconciles us to him. And so if we put this all together here, here's the fear of the Lord. It's, it's seeing God through his word such that we come to know who he is. And, and it's not merely an intellectual knowledge of him, but it's, it's a knowing him that changes our lives so that I begin to hate evil and turn away from it and I begin to love God and to trust him. That's the idea behind the fear of the Lord. It's, it's coming to know God in such a way that it transforms my life and makes me like him because I've been changed into his image. And Solomon is saying then, and, 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 with, and with this I want to take you back to Ecclesiastes. Solomon is saying the proper response to seeing the vanity of life under the sun is to fear God and to obey his commandments, and to know that he is going to judge every deed. Now let me ask you then, as we kind of come to a little bit of application here, do you have an ever-increasing knowledge of God that changes your life, that's transforming your life? Are you learning God? Are you coming to know him in such a way that you are loving what he loves and hating what he hates? Another way to ask it is by saying this, are you being obedient in your life? Are you keeping God's commandments? Not to earn God's favor, but to respond appropriately to all that he has done for you. So do you have this fear of God that Solomon commends? That's the only way that you're going to be able to depart from vanity is if you have this fear of God that, that, that helps you to know him in such a way that it transforms your life. Now, 
before we kind of leave the context of Ecclesiastes, we, I, we need to just remember one more thing. We need to rem- remember who Ecclesiastes was written to or for. And remember, Ecclesiastes is written to Israel. And what was Israel's mission in the world? What was Israel supposed to do in the world in their day? Well, they were to stay in their land and they were to obey God. And, and by staying in the land and obeying God, they were to attract the nations to come, that the nations might come and see Israel and learn about their God and themselves be saved. And that was Israel's mission. And so when you think about it then, by eating and drinking and enjoying God's provision, they would have been fulfilling their mission, right? Can you see that? By eating and drinking and enjoying the good things that God had given them, they would be attracting in that sense, they would be attracting the nations to their great God. But there's something different for the church than there was for Israel. We are called to go and make disciples, Our mission is to bring the gospel to the world, to see people saved and transformed. God hasn't called us merely to eat and drink and rejoice, right? That's not our mission is to just eat and drink and rejoice, hang out in Lacrete and enjoy steaks and all that kind of stuff. Now, we should still enjoy the good things that God has given us and, and see it as a gift from him. But we need to do more. We need to go further. Our obedience must not lose sight of our mission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations. Just listen to 1 Timothy 6 that kind of brings the right balance on this, I think. 1 Timothy 6 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But then he goes on. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then in verse 17, Paul continues, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, we're to set our hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so we are, brothers and sisters, we're free to enjoy but don't forget that this, this is going to end. This life is going to end and that we have one job, the Great Commission, and then we will be eternally rewarded for the way that we served God in fulfilling it. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, well, how does this all connect to rejoicing in the Lord? And I, wanna, I want you to turn here then to Revelation chapter 14. Maybe a, a bit of an unexpected place here, but go to Revelation Chapter 14, this is something like the midpoint in the tribulation. I'm not exactly sure where we are here, but that's, that's what's happening here. This is during the tribulation. And Revelation 14, verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And so what we've got here in Revelation 14.6 is there's an angel flying overhead, flying over the world, proclaiming the gospel, and it's called the eternal gospel. And in verse 7, he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who has made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Fear God Give him glory, worship him. That's the gospel according to this angel. Fear God, give him glory, worship him. Why? Because the time of judgment has come. Escape that judgment by fearing God, by glorifying him, and by worshiping him. And those three, fearing, glorifying, and worshiping, those go together. We might almost say that those are the same thing said differently. We typically think of the gospel as 
the good news that we can be delivered from God's holy judgment, that we can be delivered from God's wrath, and that's right. This gospel, this deliverance or rescue is through Jesus Christ, through God's Son. Jesus came to earth to represent his people, to earn for them a perfect record of human righteousness. Jesus obeyed God's holy law on our behalf where we had disobeyed. Our sin and our disobedience had earned us God's wrath, God's anger. We were under God's judgment. But Jesus bore God's wrath for us as our representative. And what we must do, according to the gospel, as we typically explain it, is we must simply believe this gospel. We must trust Jesus Christ as our only hope to be saved. And such a trust, if we do it rightly, if we really trust him, will result in turning away from sin. It will result in repentance. If I really believe this gospel, if I really believe that a holy God was going to send me to hell forever as the just penalty for my sin, and that he sent his son to pay that in my place, if I really believe that, then I will turn from the sin that crucified my Savior. And the way to tell that someone doesn't believe is to see that they make light of sin, that they have no concern about their sin. And so this Jesus, he died on the cross for sin, and he rose again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But, but the right response to this gospel is to recognize this amazing God who designed this salvation. The right response is what the angel says, to fear him, to glorify him, and to worship him. The right response to the gospel is, is to recognize that he has redeemed us through his blood, that he has shown us his infinite love. We see in the gospel, in, in what God did for our salvation, we see the power of his wrath in condemning sinners. We see his power in working regeneration in our hearts. We see his goodness and grace and mercy in saving us who were miserable and deserving his wrath. We see his justice and his righteousness and his holiness in punishing Christ for our sins. Do you see how salvation then is a, a revelation of God? God has shown us his goodness and his greatness in our salvation. He's manifested himself to us so that we can know him. And so when the angel in Revelation 14.6 preaches the gospel, the, the summary there of what he preaches focuses on the result of the gospel. That, that at the end of believing this gospel, one should fear God. And give him glory and worship him. The gospel is designed to show us God, reconcile us to him, and to make us worshipers. And if that is not you, if you are not one who has come to see God and to know God and to be a, a worshiper of God, a lover of God, then you are not a Christian yet. Now, I want you to turn then as we think about what a, a true Christian is and, and what it means to fear, worship, and glorify God. I want you to turn to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, and of course he's praying to his father here, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, in other words, salvation is knowing the one true God and knowing Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit brings us into this knowledge through the new birth, through regeneration, and, and through the Word of God. And so just like I asked you before about the fear of God, I could ask you about this knowledge of God. Have you come to know God and Jesus Christ in a life-changing way? That's what it means to be a Christian, that I have come to know God and I have come to know Jesus Christ in a life-changing way. This is eternal life that they would know the one true God and Jesus Christ. Do you have this 
eternal life. Now look at verse 6, what Jesus says there. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And then look back to verse 4. Jesus says there, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Glorifying God, what Jesus did in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth, it's the same as manifesting his name in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus has shown us who God is. Jesus perfectly manifested God's name. In other words, Jesus has manifested to us God's attributes, God's greatness, who God is. And this is, this is what we are to do as well. We, this, is, this is what we get to do. We get to manifest God's name. We get to show his glory. And this is where our joy should come from. When I was in seminary, I had to memorize this definition of God's glory. And, and really, honestly, it, it changed my life. I don't know if what I'm doing here is changing your life at all, but this, this really changed my life. It's, and this is the definition of God's glory. It's, it's quote, the goodness and greatness of God expressed in his attributes, manifested to his creatures, and responded to by them such that God is seen to be weighty, honored, majestic, and worthy of praise. So when we think about it, what is God's glory? It's his goodness and his greatness. And it's where do we find his glory? It's expressed in, its, in his attributes, in his justice and goodness and righteousness and power and omnipotence and all of the, the greatness and goodness of God. All of that is, is on display in his attributes. But this, this glory, this goodness and greatness is now manifested to us, his creatures. And we respond to God in such a way that he is seen to be weighty, honored, majestic, and worthy of praise. We see God for who he is, and then we respond to him. Now, God's attributes are shown to us in everything that he does. And so that we, we can see who he is, even from the creation and the things that he has made and the things that he does in providence. But especially, God's attributes are shown in the work of redemption, in the salvation of sinners. And so we see him, we see his goodness and his greatness, and then we respond to him. We respond in such a way that God is seen to be who he is, that, that he is seen to be weighty, that he is seen to be honored, that he is seen to be majestic, and that he is seen to be worthy of praise. And then when we then, in our response, we glorify him. Now, he is already eternally glorious. We can't add anything to his glory. But when we respond to his glory, we, we show his greatness to those around us. And we show his greatness to even the angels, Scripture says. And we respond to this God according to what he has revealed in his word. That is how we glorify him. And this recognition and response to God is also what we call fellowship with God. This is our fellowship with God. Now, I don't, and we don't, we don't talk with God like Moses and, and uh, like Moses talked to him, like a, a man talks with a friend. But we do have a real relationship with God. We do have a real back and forth with God. This is the fellowship with God that we are called to have. And actually, I just want you to turn, as we think about this, to 1 John uh, chapter 1. First John chapter 1. We could just start in verse 3. And, and John says there, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also 
to you. Well, what had John seen and heard? Well, in short, he had seen and heard the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's proclaiming Christ to these people. And he says that he does that so that you too may have fellowship with us. So he wants the people that he's writing to to have fellowship with the apostles. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy in the sense of of John's joy and the people's joy. And so John says, I'm writing this letter to you so that you may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Then at the end of the book, he says that he has written these things, chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And the idea here is that we, we have this fellowship with God, and John wants us to know that we really have this, because in this fellowship is where our joy comes from. This is what makes our joy complete. And so God has revealed himself in our salvation, and even today he is, he is working in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He is, he is working in, in our life to show himself to his creatures. He's working in this world so that we would come to fear him. God is working in the world according to his providence. Everything that comes to pass, he says, is made beautiful in its time. He is working even through the sinful actions of humans. And we recognize God's work and we recognize his character and his attributes and we respond to it. And that's a two-way fellowship then with God. And so everything should be an opportunity to recognize and respond back to God. Everything that happens to us then is an opportunity to worship to praise, to thank him, or to reveal God to those around us. Everything that happens is an opportunity to respond to God such that he would be shown to be weighty, honored, majestic, and worthy of praise. And so how I treat my wife and kids, or how I respond to my boss, or how I respond to the weather, or to a a wonderful person, or how I respond to that not-so-wonderful person that's in my life. Everything is an opportunity to glorify God in this world. And as I do that, I'm having fellowship with God. It's an opportunity to see God and to come to know Him better. And this vision of God that we have then throughout life, or this knowing God, is a foretaste then of the greater and more delightful knowledge that we will enjoy in heaven. But this knowing God, this eternal life that he gives us, this should be our joy now. This is, this is where we should be drawing our joy from this, from this knowledge of this great and awesome God that we have. And we should be constantly delighting in God and seeking to make him known. And if God himself is our joy and our worship, we will most naturally turn away from idols. And instead, we will live for him and for his glory. And if we have that joy, nobody can take that away from us, no matter what they do to us in this world. Well, we're going to sing now again in closing. And and in response, really, to the message, we're going to sing about God and his redemption and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you that you have designed our salvation and and even this world such that you put your glory first. We thank you, Father, for revealing your glory to us because we could never know you apart from the revelation that we have of you in your word. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself in our salvation so that we could come to know all of your attributes, your greatness, your glory, all of who you are, Father. And we know that that this is to be our joy, that we are to find our joy in delighting in you. Father, you've called us and commanded us even to rejoice in the Lord. And I pray that we would truly rejoice in that fellowship that we have with you, that you would make our joy complete in that fellowship and that you would help us to learn about who you are and how to 
delight in that. And, and, and then through that, Father, we pray that you would turn us away from living for the vain things of this world that truly cannot satisfy. Father, help us to sing now your praise. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.